Our test this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through to 31. You'll find this passage on page 1 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Let's hear the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emmanuel. You, you all can sit down. It's good to be back. We had a great time with family over Thanksgiving. I want to thank uh, specifically David Collins, one of our elders, for leading the Thanksgiving service. It's good to know that that time was in capable hands, and I pray that that was a a meaningful time for those who attended. Uh, we are starting in Genesis for the next several months. We'll be in Genesis until spring. And before we get into uh, some of the nitty-gritty here, I'd like to just open us with prayer before we look at the passage of Scripture. Father in heaven, thank you for your Scripture beginning to end. Thank you for the interesting accounts that we see in Genesis. Thank you for the explanation of them later in your scriptures. Thank you for letting us know the point of the whole story, Jesus Christ. Thank you for being faithful to your people, even in their unfaithfulness. Thank you for pursuing your people, even when they try to escape. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Advent. I do pray that as we go through these sermons, these next four weeks, that you would draw us closer, help us to sit still and know that you are God. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I mentioned before, we'll be in Genesis until spring. We'll take a little break around Easter to go through the book of Colossians. Um, one of the things that can be a struggle for us as we look at books, especially Old Testament books, especially a book as old as Genesis, is the gap of context. 
Okay, context is everything. And so one of the things we do as a Reformed church is we look at the Bible from a historical, grammatical context or a historical, grammatical um, uh, a philosophy. And so one of the things we have to do is understand the original meaning and then apply that original meaning to ourselves. And so uh, as we go through Genesis, I'll be bringing that context, the information we need as needed. I think as we begin this series, though, it is important to talk about this word called genre, genre. It's important to know what genre of book you're reading or else you may have the wrong expectations of that book. If you're reading a science fiction novel and you expect it to be a romance novel, you might get all mixed up. And so, Genesis, what genre is Genesis? Books of the Bible have a genre. Genesis is what we would call a theological history. A theological history. And knowing what genre it is is important because we it would be unreasonable to expect Genesis to, to be a history that... that um, gives us exact detailed accountings as if it's some kind of scientific data point. No. A theological history, rather than being as, as Tremper Longman, who wrote a great book called How to Read Genesis, I don't need to tell you what it's about because the title, um, he wrote in his book that, that reading Genesis as the author wrote Genesis, it was more as if he was painting a portrait than taking a video. You know the difference of those two things. And so as we read Genesis, as we look at Moses, the author of this book, painting a picture for the Israelites of who God is, he's also painting a picture for us of the same thing. Who is God? Who is God? The other thing I would mention is I've already used this example, but it's like reading a mystery novel the second time through. If you know who done it, you can read it the second time with different ideas in your mind. You can see the significance, a different significance of events. And so we know, as we've read Scripture, who the main character of Genesis is. It's not simply God. The main character of Genesis is Jesus. There's this beautiful passage in Luke 24. You can look it up later. Jesus has been resurrected. He meets two of his unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him. And he takes that opportunity. To, it says he took the scriptures from Moses to the prophets and explained to them in detail how and why it was all about Jesus Christ and how the scriptures pointed to him. And there's this beautiful thing that happens. He leaves them off the, on the road, and they continue walking, and they speak to one another. And it says, they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? This beautiful statement of seeing the main character of all of scripture causes this fire and this passion to burn within his disciples. And so as we read Genesis, we have to keep in mind, this is not supposed to be a, an exacting, technical, historical account. This is a, a theological account of history, events that happened, and what we can learn about God, specifically Jesus, in them. So then we come to this idea, what does creation and Christmas have in common? Uh, so Simply, creation, and we'll see this today, is the story of God designing humans, designing humans and setting us at the very center of creation right next to himself. That's what creation is. God designed the world, he designed the universe, and then he did this one special thing. He did it specifically, he created humans in his image, and he set them next to himself. 
We learn from this passage that when we are near God, peace, healing, joy, they all flow. Genesis, the rest of Genesis, is fascinating because right off the bat, we'll start this actually next week, we see the story of humans running away from that place. We rejected it. And so Christmas, as we look at the meaning of it, it finds its meaning in the first few pages of our Bible. Christmas is the story of God reunifying us with our Creator. That's the connection. And so in that sense, There's no really greater Christmas story than the creation story. The creation story lays the groundwork for Christmas to be meaningful at all. The story of a baby born in a manger has everything to do with these first few texts we're looking at over the next several weeks. And so we're looking at creation today, and we're going to connect it to Advent and Christmas. Um, Before we get into the passage itself, there's one other thing we need to talk about. Uh, we need to, if we're going to talk about creation, we have to talk about our modern context. And so something happened in 1859, around 175 years ago, that changed the conversation. Notice I'm saying conversation here, changed the conversation around Genesis 1 and 2. In 1859, uh, a man, you may have heard of him, Charles Darwin, published a book called The Origin of Species. This book uh, is the first account of evolution. And from that point forward, I would argue that Christians and non-Christians alike have been reframing the conversation of the meaning of this text around that concept, evolution. And so at times, Christian and non-Christian alike, what do we make Genesis 1 and 2 about? Well, is it evolution or is it creation? We make it about how God did things. A few weeks ago, in an unrelated passage... Well, all passages are related, but in an unrelated sermon, I made the comment that personal circumstances nor historical events change the meaning of Scripture. Those things don't change the meaning of Scripture. And so whatever the Scripture meant when Moses spoke it, whatever the Scripture meant in 1858, is the same thing it means right now. And so one of the things I did this week is I looked at some commentaries written before 1859, and thankfully, one of the, the, the uh, founders of our Reformed faith, John Calvin, wrote all of his commentaries before then. And so looking at his commentaries, reading about creation, it's interesting to see what he was facing in those days. He, in, those, in his commentaries on Genesis 1, talked about how the world, the world at his time, was criticizing Moses for not having more scientific exactness, okay? That's what this, that was the thing he was facing, and he says this, those, he, he, he called those people out who were criticizing Moses, and he said, those who dishonestly try to censure Moses. And what did he say? He said, Moses is using tactile terms, tangible words, so that when we look up and see the sun, of course, the one time we don't have the sun blaring in on me is when anyway, I use this quote, but look at the clouds and the rain even. When we look at creation, Moses has written about it in such a way that we know that God is creator. That's it. God is creator. So it's interesting to note, it's good to know for us that, guess what? The creation account has always been under attack because of its original meaning. And so 
We can see then that in our time, framing the conversation of Genesis 1 and 2 around evolution is just another way of distracting from that original meaning. As I said before, when Moses spoke these events to the Israelites in the wilderness after Egypt, it means the same thing then that it means right now for us. Now, I'll affirm this. It's good to know the science of creation. It's good to have a biblical conviction of how God created. Putting the creation account in its proper context allows science to serve the truth of Scripture. Science can then shine light on God's good and glorious character rather than scrutinize it. However, (laughs) however, the science of creation oftentimes misses the personal meaning of this passage. It misses it. I know some of you are probably raring for pastor to, to get into the science of creation. We're not doing that this morning. There's something more important than answering the question, how? The more important question is who and why? Those are the more important questions. And so, as a summary of what we're going to see, we're going to see that God is a personal God that created something very personal to himself, and then he created persons to be personally present with him. There's a lot of person in there. God's personal. He created something that was important to himself. He created humans especially to be with him. And so, today, we're going to look at creation in this context And we're going to take this original meaning and apply it to ourselves in this specific time of Advent leading to Christmas. As we look at the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, as we look at its content, we can see several things about God's creation that are important for us to note. Let's get right into it. First of all, God created in an orderly fashion. You can look at this from verse 1 all the way to verse 25. The the acts of creation, it was orderly. You can even see alignment. Uh, Day 1 aligns with day 3. Light and and night and day aligns with sun, moon, and stars. There, There is orderliness. God did things on purpose. You can see even in Genesis 1, there was nothing. God spoke, and then there was everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is not uninvolved. God does not leave things to chance. God rules all, plans all, purposes all, events, times, and places for his purposes. Now, science, again, reveals the orderliness of God. Think about how we do science, right? You can tell I'm a theologian. I just said do science, right? Uh, You use a method to do science, Use science by method, and so by the scientific method, what can we do? We can uncover the method of God's science, uh, 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 creation, uh, creativity. The intricacies of his creative genius are evident just in the fact that we can study it methodically. Some of you engineers are really hyped about this. God was an engineer. He planned and he executed the plan. But God was not simply an engineer. He was also an artist. He was also an artist. We can see again in verses 1 through 25 and finally in verse 31 that God didn't just create to create. He created with enjoyment. He had fun doing it. In verses 1 through 25, there's six days of creation accounted for. And six times in in those verses, guess what it says? It was good. Look at verse 31. 
And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What does this word good mean? It means pleasing, desirable, lovely, pleasant, merry, festive. So God, as he creates light and land and water and fish and birds and beasts and bugs and plants and planets, and especially people, he's doing it because he delights in it. He enjoyed every second of it. He didn't do it because he had to. He did because he wanted to. It's important to hear that God does not resent creating us. This is a message we're going to have to remind ourselves as we watch humans in Genesis do awful things. God doesn't resent it. God delights in his creation. He delights in his creation of people. And so as We watch human beings, again, run from God and do these horrific things. The question comes up, and it's a question we still ask today. Why does God put up with evil? Another way to put that is, why does God keep showing grace? Why does he allow this planet just to keep spinning? And and it's less about callousness. The answer we find in creation, it's more about patience. We're his creations. He created us to do something specific, to be with him. And he delights in our very existence. And so God patiently holds on to humanity and grace in order to restore his people to their original intent. Speaking of that, as we look at these verses, verses 26 and 27, we can see that we were created with an intent. We were created to reflect our creator. Read with me here, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. This is very different than the rest of creation. Certainly, Trees, changing leaves, rain, clouds, sun, the ocean, the mountains, these things cry out that God is creator, but there's something very special and specific that humans do. We were created to reflect his image. This word image means a replica, a model, an inscription, a likeness. Our existence, our superiority to all other created things is ascribed to the fact that God, when he created humankind, he put his thumbprint on us. He didn't do that with any other thing. So God created in order. God enjoyed his creation. He created us especially to reflect him. And in verse 28 we can see that he gave us a purpose. He didn't just set us as a piece of art to sit and look at an image of himself to stare at and study. No, he gave us a purpose. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These Three commands, be fruitful, multiply, subdue. This is what's referred to as the creation mandate. The creation mandate. God, 
didn't simply create and then do all the work. He created humankind to have, to have a relationship with him. We'll see that in a moment. And then he gave us a duty. We are in charge of implementing his plan on earth from the very beginning of time. He entrusted humans with the implementation of that plan. There's so many questions that arise for me. This is a little bit of a side note, but there are so many questions that arise for me and the things that aren't said, the things that Moses didn't paint. One of those is, were there these wild areas on the earth where humans had to go and tame? We don't know this, but he calls us to subdue. He calls us to go forth and bring the earth under his command. And that command, this creation mandate lives on today in a different form. It's called the Great Commission. We as God's people are called to go out and bring those who do not know God into his rule, under his rule. Bring people that serve God and serve his purpose. Verses 29 and 30 also show us that another aspect of God creating in this very personal way, not only were we created with a purpose, we were created to be in relationship to God, in relationship with him. Here we, we see it indirectly because God is directly speaking with Adam and Eve in these passages, and so it's not uh, uh, stated outright, but we see later in Genesis' account that, that he walked with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the evening. He had a close relationship with them. Those verses that Jacob read, that's the perfect example of what this is talking about. He created them with a purpose. He created them with a mission, and they sat next to him going about their work in relationship. He delighted in that. In verse 29 and 30, it says, and God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God created in an orderly fashion. God created in an artistic way where he, he delighted in what he was doing. He created humans in this special way to, to reflect his image. He gave them a purpose, and then he desired and implemented a personal companionship with them. And so in this time of the world, we don't know how long it lasted, but as they did these things, Adam and Eve, there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no jealousy. It was just enjoyment and an unfiltered relationship with their creator. That's what happened here. That's what God brought about. On paper, verse 31 is what the world is supposed to be like. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That's what nearness to God looks like. That's what nearness to the creator looks like. That's what nearness to the life giver looks the perfect friend of humanity looks like. It was very good. Think about the Christmassy words that come with good. Peace and joy and harmony, unity, happiness. All of that centered on simply being with God, their creator. Having just uh, had Thanksgiving, 
with our families. Mom, I know you're listening tomorrow, so don't take anything personal, but we know. We, we don't have this harmony everywhere we go. Some of you had a harder Thanksgiving than others. Some of you have had plans upended by sickness. Forget the holidays. Our whole lives are a witness to the fact that this is not what life is like. <laughs> it's not like that. Our world is full of chaos. Our lives are full of chaos and obstacles and hurt and pain. It's very clear that our world is full of violence and discord and brokenness. These things are generated as humans attempt to reflect their own glory rather than God's glory. These things are generated as humanity continues to run headlong away from God. These things are generated by lives centered on human selfishness and human progress at all costs. There's a tension. And I think the Christmas season in the Western world is actually a great representation of this tension. A season intended to celebrate the healing and repair of the relationship between humans and the Creator. What is it marred by? Chaos, greed, distraction, accumulation. That's what we focus on. And it's into this chaotic mess that we know as life that Jesus enters the scene. He didn't hold back. God didn't try to fix it from afar. Just like God created intimately. You see in Genesis 2 that there's a more detailed account of human beings. God got his hands dirty as he created human beings. In the same way that he created, he was present and it was for him and it was delightful. In the same way, God the Son in the flesh entered this world as a lowly baby. This is the greatest gift ever given. Why is this the greatest gift? Because this gift brings us back to our creator. Do you see it? Our creator who created us on purpose, with purpose, for his own delight. And so Christmas is a recognition that God came, that Jesus came to reunify God's creation to himself. Christmas is a recognition that Jesus came to establish enjoyment of God once again. He came to recreate humans, to reflect their creator once again. Jesus came so that we could be with the life giver again. Thinking about the application of this sermon, I think sometimes it's easy to try and find like a three-step process to follow. But listen, I think it's important as we start Advent for the Scripture's truth to be stated and then for us to let the Holy Spirit guide us into our own application. The Holy Spirit speaks truth to us in specific ways. We all have different needs and we all have different struggles and we all have different sins we all are broken in different ways, and so there, there is a, a sense in which we're just going to speak the truth of creation 
its relevance to Christmas and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. And so what is the truth this morning? God created us to be near him. We'll see in the weeks to come that we ran away from that. Jesus was born. God himself came to recreate us in his image, to reunite us to himself. And so what is the truth in our lives, which is marred by chaos? God is relentlessly present. That's the the commonality between creation and the Christmas story. God didn't just leave humans to their own devices. He comes near. He draws them near to himself. God pursues. And church, Advent is the perfect time. It's the perfect time in our lives to look for that truth, to see that truth, to label it, and take a moment or two in this season to just sit in that truth that God is relentlessly present with us. Being away from church last week, it's always a a good time for me to remind myself what I'm thankful for. And one of the things that I am most thankful for at Grace is that we do the Lord's Supper every week. I know some think that that should only be a once a month thing or every six week thing. I am thankful that we come back again and again and again to the reminder, the physical, visible reminder of the gospel. And I think that the Lord's Supper is perfect for Advent. Of course it is. God instituted it through Jesus Christ And so here we have this tangible evidence of God's love, the bread and the wine. As tangible as holding the baby Jesus, we see a reminder of the cross of Jesus Christ, what God did to reunify us to himself. And so we can look at the bread as we taste the bread. We can look at the wine or the juice, and as we taste the juice, We can be reminded of God's relentless love for his people. He loved us first. He created us first. He chose to create us. And even when we ran away, he came after us. And so the Lord's Supper this morning is an invitation to pause in the chaos of life, to recognize God's presence, his love, and to sit in it and think of it and experience it. So this morning, if you confess that you personally are a sinner, what is sin? It's running away from God. There's something about our hearts, our souls that rejects God's lordship. If you recognize about that about yourself and you also recognize that Jesus Christ is the only remedy to that rebellion, Jesus Christ alone, God in the flesh. You profess that to be true. You've been baptized. You're invited this morning to participate in this love story. And you come, you're invited. And now you can look at the sun and know that God is creator. Good timing. There's also a warning in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, they drink judgment on themselves. What does that mean? It means if you have no room in your life for Jesus, or you have no room in your life for repentance, this meal is not for you. And so let's take a moment 
Let's pray to ourselves silently. Let's evaluate where we stand before God. Are we with Christ or not? Do we recognize our sin or not? And then I will gather us together for the prayer of blessing before we distribute the Lord's Supper. Father, oh, how the words of humans fail to do your truth, your character, your glory, justice. But we are blessed not just with the words of humans. We are blessed with the plan, your eternal plan to save your people. We're blessed with the work of Jesus Christ and his birth, his his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, all for us. We're blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit that comforts and convicts, that teaches, that counsels, that gives us this time of the Lord's Supper. By the power of the Spirit, we are here present with our Lord and Savior. And so we accept it in our frailty. We profess that you are all that saves Jesus Christ. Only by the name of Jesus Christ can we be saved. And so this morning, bless this bread, bless this juice, things that have no power in themselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, they have great meaning, tangible reality. So I pray that that would be our experience this morning, this first Sunday of Advent, as we participate in the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.